Last week, we started uh, a study of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, so we did the first four verses of Luke. And now this week, we're going to skip to Luke chapter 3. We're going to study the sort of life and ministry and and uh, arrest and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And then it'll be Christmas time. And so we'll circle back around and study the birth of Jesus at the end. So we'll see how that uh, that pattern works, but that's our plan. So if you have a Bible, you can turn it to Luke chapter 3. Uh, it'll be on the screen as well. Luke writes, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, and during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan River, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low and the crooked will be made straight and the rough ways will be made smooth and all humanity will see the salvation of God. So John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you offspring of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Therefore, produce fruit that proves your repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So the crowds were asking him, what then should we do? John answered them, The person who has two tunics must share with the person who has none, and the person who has food must do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what should we do? He told them, Collect no more than you are required to. Then some soldiers also asked him, And as for us, what should we do? He told them, Take money from no one by violence or by false accusation, and be content with your pay. While the people were filled with anticipation, and they all wondered whether perhaps John could be the Christ, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clean out his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his storehouse, but the chaff he will burn up with inextinguishable fire. And in this way, with many other exhortations, John proclaimed good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil deeds that he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him 
in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my one dear son, in you I take great delight. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment, as we're silent together, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, open our ears so that we can hear what you are saying to us through John, through Luke, so that we could be called to that same place where we cry out before you, what should we do? What should we do? Lord, draw us, tenderize us, purify us. Have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The word of the Lord came to John. That's what it says. That means John is a prophet. He's a prophet in the way of the Old Testament prophets. That's how God, you know, called Zechariah. Uh, that's how God called Jeremiah or Isaiah. That's how God called Elijah. The word of the Lord came to John. And like the prophets of old, the ministry of John the Baptist is unmistakably a warning. It's a warning from beginning to end. And, and, and he is saying all over, judgment is coming. That's John's message. Judgment is coming. It will affect everyone, the Jew and Roman alike, the rich and poor alike, the tax collectors, the soldiers, it will affect everyone. Since John is sort of in the style of the Old Testament prophets, uh, we could learn a bit from them. Uh, generally, they had two big topics. When, when a prophet came, there were two things on their minds, sometimes both of them. Idolatry, which is worshiping other gods, and injustice. And John really makes no mention of idolatry, none that we see here. But he surveys the world and he sees injustice everywhere. He sees common people ignoring, even taking advantage of the poor. He sees that, they are, that, that those who have food and clothing are not sharing it with those who don't. Of course, he sees people in positions of power and privilege, particularly those people who are in position to take advantage of those monetarily, like tax collectors and, and Roman soldiers who, who could be paid for bringing someone to court and accusing them, whether it was true or false. He sees them taking advantage of the people in low positions. And so Luke quotes the prophet Isaiah to explain. He, he, he talks about the mountains being made low and the valleys filled in. The mountains represent the people in the positions of power. The valleys represent the people who are down low, underneath. A great leveling is coming. And people can either fight it to their peril or they can get on board with it and participate in it which is salvation. So let me say again, just to be clear, the message of John, the heart of the way God used John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus is warning people about 
judgment. Judgment. I didn't want to talk about this. In fact, like I spent most of the week uh, studying this passage, like thinking about all oh, this great, you know, the, the advice that John gives to the tax collectors and the soldiers and how we can apply that to all sorts of other jobs and, you know, and what that, what that means for the life of Christians. And, and yet when I step, stepped back, you know, I, I was missing the forest for the trees. This is about judgment. So, okay, a couple things to keep in mind. First, it's likely that Luke assembled this, this account of the story of Jesus after the year 70 AD, which is the year that the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and, and the Jews were scattered all over the empire. So when John says the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, it's likely that Theophilus, you know, Luke's the guy Luke is sending this to, it's likely that Theophilus would think, yeah, the axe is the Roman Empire and the tree is the temple. It got chopped down not long after this happened. God judged his own people for their mistreatment of the poor and vulnerable. If he would do that to the temple, what will he do to you and to me? That's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is as much as I want to avoid judgment, and I really do, I really do, the Bible is bursting with it. These warnings about judgment. I mean, even early on when God gives the law, first the law comes and then there's all of these blessings for those who obey it and curses for those who disobey it. And they're terrifying. You know, the even the, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, the book we just studied, do you remember the last sentence of Ecclesiastes? It effectively says, oh, and by the way, a day is coming when God will judge every thought, every word, every deed, whether secret or known. Oh, thanks. You know, that's his closing word. The Bible is bursting with, of course, of course the prophets are all about warnings of judgment. God doesn't give his word to a prophet when things are going great. No, he comes when people need their attention got, and they get it. John the Baptist doesn't stop the judgment in the New Testament, and the New Testament is full of warnings of judgment, too. Jesus is often talking about these, kind of, he's telling these stories where the people who respond well, you know, are in the party, and there are others who are outside in the dark where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and darkness and fire and Oh, oftentimes Jesus' followers would listen to him explain something and they'd be like, well, then who could possibly be saved? I mean, that's how harsh some of Jesus' teaching was. And, and it goes into the letters of the New Testament too. Paul and Peter and James and, and John all write with the shadow of the day of the Lord cast over them. I mean, they are expecting a great and meticulous judgment coming and they say the 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 job of christian leaders is to warn people about it oh man i i I really am prone to avoid the topic i mean you know you guys know that if you've heard more than you know two or three sermons of mine i i want to talk about the good stuff 
You know, I want to talk about uh, uh, grace. I want judgment to be swallowed up in grace. I, 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 I want to see myself and other sinners as, as victims, not as perpetrators. People needing rescue, not punishment. I want the curse to be swallowed up in blessing. I want punishment to be swallowed up in reward. I want wrath to be swallowed up in love. I prefer to focus my attention on heaven, not on hell. And maybe you do too. <laughs> it's nicer to think about. I want to be drawn to God's kindness rather than frightened into obedience by his wrath. That doesn't feel like a good way to motivate to me. I'm sensitive also to cultural perceptions about God, about kind of, you know, traditional Christianity that see God as really punitive and, and grumpy. In truth, I, I often kind of live in the, the inverse of that scene at the end of The Wizard of Oz. You know, they finally make it into the wizard's chamber, and there's this big, glowing, scary head with a loud voice and smoke and, and thunder, you know, and, and, and you know, they're all terrified, but then they notice the guy behind the curtain, and, and the voice says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You know, I'm kind of living in the inverse of that. Like, pay no attention to the judge on the throne. You know, I'm really comforted. There's a scene in Revelation chapter 4 where um, the angel says to John, you know, behold the lion of Judah, which is a scary image. And he turns, and what does he see? The lamb who was slain. I'm comforted by that. But what you've just heard is really a confession even this passage about John, I, I, I wanted to avoid the judgment. I, I wanted to focus on, hey, let's do our work with integrity and kindness and generosity. That's, that's nice. But the tax collectors and soldiers, they weren't desperate to change their behavior because John was so nice to them. That's not how God was using John. From beginning to end, what John does is brings a message of judgment. I mean, think about how he starts. You children of snakes. I like the older language. You brood of serpents. That's how he starts. Who warned you to flee? What are you even doing here? Who warned you? You think you're the children of Abraham? No, no, no. You're more like the offspring of the one who tricked Eve in the garden. You're the children of serpents. You're more like the snakes who invaded the Israelite camp during the Exodus. I mean, he's really winning people over here. And he ends, you know, that at the end of John's ministry, recorded here, uh, they're asking him, like, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? And he's, what, what does he say? He says, no, no. <laughs> I'm baptizing you with water, you guys. Gentle, refreshing water. One is coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And, and he's, he's like a, a farmer who's gathering in the crops and he's going to sort out the wheat from the chaff and he's going to burn up the chaff with inextinguishable fire. I mean, he's saying, guys, I'm just the warm-up act. I'm I am your sparring partner in the gym. You're getting ready to face Mike Tyson. That's a boxing illustration. <laughs> I know that. The coming of Jesus is, uh, is God's most gracious act 
in history. It is the picture of grace. But God prepares his people for it with words of terrifying judgment. If John is a prophet, if the word of God came to John, then God is telling us through him that Jesus does not remove judgment from the world. Jesus is the judgment of the world. That's what he's telling us. Perhaps the most famous sermon in American history, I I should say maybe the most infamous sermon in American history, was preached uh, by the 18th century pastor and theologian in New England named Jonathan Edwards. And probably just by my, my saying Jonathan Edwards, some of you know the title of the sermon I'm referring to. What's, what's the sermon? Anyone? Yes. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That'll bring the people in off the street. You know, <laughs> sinners in the hands of an angry God. I mean, it, this has become the symbol in American Christianity of the hellfire and brimstone sermon, right? The terrifying, you know, just scare the hell out of people, literally, type sermon. And, uh, you know, it's become sort of a caricature. We kind of we mock it, and we mock that style. The true story behind that sermon has been lost to our cultural judgment of it. You know, by the, by the time Edwards was preaching this sermon, there was... Oh, something wild was happening in New England, especially. Uh, we called the First Great Awakening. People were coming to repentance, to conversion. They were changing their lives dramatically, and it was sweeping through all sorts of churches. Um, and, you know, people were, there was expressions of the Holy Spirit. People would weep in, in worship. They, they would be moved. They're, they would ha- experience things that could only be God moving on them. There was all sorts of renewal of faith and new faith and conversion. And, and you know, Jonathan Edwards is remembered in, in sort of Christian academic circles as America's greatest theologian ever. And he is brilliant and kind of hard to read. He's so complex. He wrote long intellectual sermons. They were carefully structured and carefully reasoned. And he would, you know, he would write them out or he would effectively memorize them. And uh, his listeners, you know, there's one account that's great. They, they said um, uh, he, he would fix his eyes on a point in the back of the room, not on any person, on a point in the back of the room. And one guy said he was staring at this rope so hard for so long, I thought he was going to burn a hole in it. He wouldn't move. He wouldn't inflect his voice. And yet he was being used mightily in this movement. So this sermon, it wasn't preached in a church, actually. There was, he had gone to an area where, you know, this kind of revival was breaking out and a homeowner was uh, hosting a gathering to, to share the gospel with people. They invited Edwards to preach. So, so there he was, people were stuffed into sort of two rooms in this house and, you know, all crammed in and he starts preaching this sermon and it's not an ordinary sermon for him. Usually, he didn't have that many illustrations or, or, imagery, or images, but you'll see in just a minute, he used a lot of vivid imagery in this sermon. It's still, if we were to hear it, you know, the, his sermon by word count is like 
10 times longer than a normal sermon of mine. I used tons of imagery and, and, uh, and what happened? As he began to preach, as he began to layer image upon image, proving logically that the responsibility for God's wrath was not God's fault, it was, you know, each of our own, each individual's sin warranted his just response. He, he, the whole sermon is based on a little verse, a part of a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 32. The, the verse says, their foot shall slide in due time. That's the text for the sermon of sinners in the hands of, the, of an angry God. Let me give you a little sampling once he got into it, you know, first he lays out his logical case and then the application, which is like maybe 45 minutes in or an hour into the sermon, the application goes like this. Here's just, I'm just pulling a little, little bits and pieces. It's going to be a bunch of things in a row, Bailey, so you got it. All right, listen to this. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. Okay, so there's a flood coming. Or he says, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. He aimed right at his listeners with statements like, your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead and tend downward with great weight and pressure toward hell. Or unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten, on a rotten covering and may fall through at any moment. This is the most famous image of the sermon. He says, the God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some other loathsome insect over a fire. Tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. In a crescendo, Edwards cries, Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Wow. You can imagine in an age before television and vivid picture books and whatever else, how these poetic words would have shaken his listeners to the core. They are seeing it as he is saying it. This is just a sampling. I mean, there's harsher stuff than this. I've got it in my office if you want to read it. So, you know, it is a long sermon, but it's worth reading. And, and for much of the sermon, it seems like wrath is the only possibility. Here's what a lot of people don't know about the sermon. Edwards never finished it. He didn't finish preaching it. He's in this house church meeting, and he starts describing these images. And a, a, a pastor who was involved in the meeting was uh, a few blocks away, and he says, you could hear the shrieking and wailing from blocks away. The people started crying and wailing at this sermon. That Edwards, he, he had to just stop and start ministering to people. So we didn't get to finish it. We didn't get to the 
end. They were crying out, What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I'm going to hell. What shall I do for Christ? That's what the witnesses record. What shall we do? That's what the people asked John the Baptist. The same thing. The axe is laid at the root of the trees. There's fire coming. And so they say, what? What should we do? It's a desperate question, isn't it? And yet it assumes something wonderful. It assumes that there's hope. That there's a chance, right? It assumes like it's the 11th hour, but not the 12th. That there's still an opportunity. God sends his prophets with warning as a mercy, as a gift. He's under no obligation to warn them. He gives them a chance to ask, what must we do? This isn't the last time that Luke will record this question. This is Luke 3 that we're looking at. If you go to Acts chapter 3, you see the the scene of uh, uh, the day of Pentecost. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, but anyway. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And Peter gets up and preaches this amazing sermon. And, and the warning is not a bunch of metaphors in that sermon. When Peter gets up, he says, look, Jesus is alive. We've seen him. He resurrected. So we now have proof that he is God's chosen one. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. But guess what? And he's in Jerusalem. He's talking to a big crowd of Jewish people. He says, you executed the Messiah. I mean, imagine you're, you're hearing this proof, you're compelled by it, and you realize, oh, God, what have I done? What have I done? And so they cry out to Peter, what must we do? What must we do? Friends, by ignoring the judgment of God, by ignoring the growing cancer, we're liable to disregard the cure. We must hear the judgment. There's mercy in the warning. It it could be just a sentencing. This is coming. There's nothing you can do. What must we do is a, is an, it could be an irrelevant question. It could just be you've, you've missed your chance. But when God sends his prophets, when he sends his son, when he sends the followers of his son, they are bearers not of bad news, but of good. Didn't Luke say, and with many other words like these, John preached good news. Like, which part of it was good again? But that's, the, that's what's happening. Maybe the good news is in the application, you know. It is good advice. He says, you know, effectively, like, like uh, uh, Hosea, do, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with the Lord your God. He's telling people to have integrity. He's, he's not telling you to quit your job, just to do it really goodly. There's something for everyone. It's radical, but, you know, you can remain a tax collector and a soldier and, and follow the advice. Find the redemptive edge. You know, and everyone, everyone can respond to it. John says, if you have two shirts, if you have a little bit of extra food, you can respond to this. Okay. That reminds me of Francis of Assisi. Francis felt that the poor around him had more right to anything that passed into his possession. 
than he did. Francis would go hungry for days and days. He would just keep giving food to the next hungry person he found. I mean, he, he died probably of malnourishment. Okay? Maybe. Maybe that's the good news. You know, in the trial that is my own life, I'm not saying it's a hard life, but standing before the judge, the truth is, though, those, those good advice moments, they just create a lot of good intentions for, him, for me. I, I, I could be there compelled by John. It's such a great, such a great picture. You know, he, oh, yes, that's what I'll do. I'll get, you know, say I'm a Roman soldier. Yes, I will go and, and live this way. But by the time I'm home, I've thought of 15 reasons why I can't do that, why I can't give my extra shirt away. Man, the, the good advice actually puts me in greater risk. In truth, John whispers the good news in a way that we have to have really careful ears to hear it. The people want to know, they ask him, are you the guy? Is it you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the bringer of judgment? Are you the one we're waiting for? And so John answers, and he says this strange phrase. He says, one more powerful than I is coming. And then he says, I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. What are you saying there? Now, I've sort of always assumed he's saying, he's such a high king that I don't even deserve to be a servant in his palace. But I learned this week, that's not what John is saying. He is, he is using an old image from the Old Testament. To find it, we need to go to the book of Ruth. I'll just summarize it. Ruth is this Moabite woman. She's married into an Israelite family. Then the family is decimated. All the men of the family die. So Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, they're sort of left destitute. They have to travel from Moab back to Israel. They are just beggars. And so Ruth discovers this field that's owned by this kind man named Boaz. And she starts to, to gather, you know, the edges of the field. Boaz is, is, uh, is an obedient Israelite. He's leaving some for the poor in his field. So through uh, a chain of events, uh, Naomi discovers that Boaz is the next of kin in the family. He's, he's the next closest related man in their family. In other words... Boaz has a legal right and perhaps an obligation to marry into the family and take care of the destitute women. And so what does Naomi tell Ruth to do? She tells Ruth, go to Boaz, there's this feast, wait till after the feast, and then go and, and she uses this phrase, uncover his feet. Now some think that's a euphemism, and it might be, but the the Jewish interpreters and a lot of the early church said, no, 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 this is a ceremony that was utilized to mark the Redeemer, to identify the kinsman Redeemer. John is saying, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, but he's the one who's wearing the sandals that need to be untied. He is the Redeemer. He's coming to marry the destitute woman. Who is that? It's Israel. That's who he's coming for. John is telling us that the one who's coming is the Redeemer. And then at the end of our passage, Jesus, it's so, almost an afterthought for Luke. 
Oh, yeah, all the people were getting baptized. Yep, yeah, Jesus got baptized too. But we need to wrestle with that theologically because it's a baptism of repentance and Jesus is without sin. And so what is he repenting of? You know, okay, I'm, I appreciate the way this bishop from the third century named Cyprian says it. He says, although he himself was not a sinner, he did not disdain to bear the sins of others. So he's receiving a baptism not on his own behalf, but on ours. And when he does that, God speaks. This is my son. In other words, he's qualified to be the redeemer. He's qualified to be the one. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form, appearing as what? As a dove. What do you associate a dove with? (laughs) Peace. Peace. That's what everyone associates doves with. You know, peace. I think there's that scene where that's the sound a dove makes. Also, maybe a pigeon, but they're very related. Um, yeah. Okay. That yeah. That's sort of the cultural interpretation of a dove. You know, this peace. But for for Jewish people, they did not associate a dove with peace necessarily. A dove is a very specific and important symbol for the Jewish people. Where's a dove in the story? A dove is on Noah's boat. A dove is the bird that Noah sends out and it returns with the little twig in its mouth letting Noah know that the judgment was ended. The judgment was complete. The floods had covered the waters and now they were parting again. I'm sorry, the waters had covered the earth. You get what I'm saying. And now they were parting again. Judgment was over. A new creation was beginning When the Spirit comes as a dove, we are witnessing a new judgment. Remember, Jesus is the judgment of the world. And in this moment, after all the warnings of John, what we see is that the flood will not destroy the world again. It will destroy the sun. That's what's happening. That's what the dove is telling us. And a new creation is beginning. I thought that in a sermon, some people should hear the words that Jonathan Edwards never got to preach at the end of his sermon. After all of those terrible, terrifying images, Jonathan Edwards says, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity A day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in and are now in an happy state with their hearts filled with love to him that has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How can you rest one moment in such a condition? The the bad news sets us up for the good. We need to know how bad it is to realize how good he is. So God's judgment is real. It is coming. 
Will you take it upon yourself? Or will you throw yourself upon the one who took the flood for you? I don't know exactly what that day will be like. The images are very scary. But I'm confident of two things. God's justice will be perfect. It will be total and complete, and it won't miss a thing. It will be accurate down to the smallest detail, number one. And his love and his mercy will be perfect, and it will reach to every corner of his creation. And both of those things will happen. And whatever else all of the images mean, all of the, you know, the revelation stuff, the dragons and the fires and the, and the monsters and, and the prophets and, and whatever else all of those other things mean, God's justice and his love will be perfect and perfectly married in that day. So friends, I love how the song says it, that, that his love and justice meet on the cross. And that's the story that we celebrate every time we come to this table. When you come, you are announcing to yourself, Father, judge your son in my place. I receive his body. I receive his blood. Judge him in my place. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We're terrified of you. You are holy and powerful, and you are good and kind. You are beautiful, and you are frightening, and you see everything. Lord, you know what's happening in my mind and heart. Even now, you know the mixed motives. Even now, and you will parse it all out, and I, and I recognize that. And so, Lord, I say, judge your son in my place. Judge your son in the place of my brothers and sisters. Thank you for your goodness. We come before you poor and needy and desperate for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.